Welcome to the Give Back Economy, a podcast about social innovation and social enterprise. Now with your host, Peter Miller. Welcome, and today we uh, are outside of Ontario, and we're talking to Tariq Fancy of the Rumi Initiative. So welcome, Tariq, and tell us about your education, because I know it's fairly extensive. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, first of all, it's great to great to be here. Um, should I tell you a bit about my background in general, or or my education? I'm you know start happy with to education, give you the whole and then we'll get into your work experience. So I uh, was born and raised in Toronto, uh, and um, you know graduated, and then decided to study in the U.S. after getting a scholarship. So I studied in. Um, at Brown, uh, and then uh, spent a year abroad studying in England, my junior year, and then later in life would uh, go back to grad school uh, and uh, have two graduate degrees from French universities, as it happens, one an MBA from NCAD, and then a master's in economics and public policy that I did in Paris. Um, so, uh, yeah, so kind of a, uh, that gives a little bit of a hint into my um sort of global interests around international development, you know, in the sense that I grew up in Canada and studied at four universities in four different countries outside of Canada, because part of the MBA I actually did in Singapore. So it's quite, quite, uh, I'm fortunate to have had the opportunity to get educated in a, in a bunch of different places. So let's move into your career, your work experience. Did that start at university or before? It started before. Um, I had always had an interest in technology uh, and really, um, you know, really around, it was an early coder sort of and had started building websites very early in the 90s just as a side side job and was kind of a little bit of an er, er, old school, early, I guess, early kind of hacker type um, with a few close friends of mine, all of whom studied computer science and stayed in technology. Uh, and I... Um, wanted to study economics and focus on issues of, you know, around global politics and economics, but then I stayed involved in technology. And so that meant that, um, you know, I actually worked internships doing coding and technology related things, uh, but um, had never actually studied it directly. And so coming out of undergrad, I had offers uh, to, uh, you know, work in the tech space and then decided to try to do finance, but then to merge it with, the stuff I knew in technology, I landed on investment banking, uh, but focused on the technology sector. And so I started my career out in Silicon Valley uh, in a group that was doing, you know, a lot of big tech IPOs, you know, in the, in the, in the tech bubble, dot-com bubble 20 years ago. Okay. So somewhere along the line, you came up with the idea of the Rumi Initiative. Where did the name come and what's the purpose of the organization? So um, the name came because I had this uh, deep interest in using technology to address social problems at scale. And, um, I, you know, the, the problem that Rumi was meant to address was education, right? The lack of access to, to learning for so many people in the world who have innate potential that never gets realized, you know, very unfairly. And so the name actually was... You know, it really didn't have much to do with education it was because some of the inspiration, you know, um, behind doing it was uh, came from the poetry of 
the poet Rumi, Jalaluddin Muhammad Rumi, who had lived 800 years ago in sort of a, in in, uh, in in Persia, and um, and I uh, had always loved Rumi's um, uh, work, and uh, you know, kind of just took the name Rumi and put an E on the end, you know, for education, and that was you know the domain name was available, and I said, all right, I'm not going to overthink it. That sounds good to me. And, you know, the idea for the organization itself had come before that because I'd worked many years ago when I, after investment banking, I had worked at an investment firm in New York and we would do turnarounds of, you know, distressed or, uh, or, you know, troubled companies. And we came across one that I'd led an investment into, which was, uh, had made their goal to bring mobile phones into emerging markets. And the idea was that in places like Kenya, which is where my parents actually were born and raised, uh, you know, and my brother was born also just before they immigrated to Canada and I was born, you know, they, they didn't have landlines. And in the absence of landlines, as mobile phone technology started to grow uh, in rich countries, you could see the potential to bring it to poor countries and it would be far more meaningful because, you know, we were going from a landline, you know, which is pretty good and it works to a mobile phone, which is obviously, you know, a bit better because you, you're, you're able to be mobile with it. But for places like in, you know, in Nairobi, Kenya or, or other parts of the developing world, or even remote parts of places like Canada, it was not necessarily economical to build an entire landline infrastructure. And so it hadn't been built. And you saw this potential to go straight to mobile phones and that and that you know sort of was a, was called a leapfrog innovation because they skipped you know landlines and went straight to mobile phones and Rumi came about because i started to realize having i led an investment to do that we picked the timing perfectly and it was both an investment that was you know lucrative but also created a lot of social impact um by building critical infrastructure in these countries as a byproduct and so the idea behind Rumi was that as you get more and more mobile phones, there's billions around the world, and as the quality of them improves, so you go from the most basic Nokia handset to one that has a bit of color, it can have rich content, and eventually you have a uh, you know basic smartphone, the cheapest of which are now, you know, in the fifty dollar range um, or under hundred certainly. That opened up the potential to use that infrastructure to deliver free learning content. It's what I call kind of the shift from books to bytes, right? Because if you have you know, billions of mobile phones around the world, including in Asia and in Africa and in remote parts of Canada. At some point, it no longer makes sense to ship paper textbooks to these places when you can just switch to a model where you deliver free learning directly to their mobile device. The cost to do that is next to nothing. If they have the device already, there's a marginal cost of electricity, which is very, very minor, a marginal cost of for a mobile device marginal cost of, um, you know, additional uh, bandwidth. And we had figured out how to make things work offline and so on so that, you know, you weren't always, you didn't need a fast internet connection all the time. And all of that led to, um, you know, Rumi being born with the goal of saying, can we make learning easy, fun, accessible, uh, and free to anyone, anywhere, you know, knowing that, um, the impact was, you know, was really disproportionately amongst the communities who have the most to gain from the explosion in free digital learning online, but are usually, according to data, the least likely to access it. So how do you compare it to uh, Acumen and Coursera? So the biggest difference with us is that we don't actually compete directly with them because we've built our model around something called microlearning. And the idea there is that when you deliver learning to someone on a mobile device, 
Well, we started to figure out because we were started doing it in 2013 and we were only doing digital, right? We weren't like an education provider who's kind of switching or doing both or we were only doing it to mobile phones, um, which are of course, in some sense, the, the device of choice or the computer of choice for the youngest and the, and the poorest globally. You know, we knew that um, um, in, uh, well, we'd figured out very early that people learn differently on digital than they, than they learn in person, um, which is to say that uh, they generally want more engaging content. They want stuff that is shorter and quicker and easier um, because that's how they're trained to use mobile devices, right? It's any moment you're bored, you just grab it and you unlock it. And people have gotten a lot in the habit of using social media, right? You just grab it. You, you know, the average session time someone spends on Instagram is six minutes. And so someone spends six minutes on there, gets a dopamine rush from doing it. That's the way this sort of thing is built. And um, in the end, they go back then to, you know, to their day and Facebook just keeps hacking a lot of time out of your day like that. There's an in interesting stat on that point, which is that um, the average Instagram session is six minutes, but the average social media user spends two and a half, you know, three hours a day on it. Um, the average teen in North America spends over seven hours on their mobile phone. So you can sort of see how they've successfully managed to um, squeeze a lot of our time out of, time out of, our, out of our days you know, not necessarily in giant blocks, but just, you know, singles and doubles kind of here and there throughout the day. Someone's waiting for the bus, someone's waiting before a meeting. And so our insight was that um, if you could make learning, if you could in some ways mimic the engagement mechanics of the social media companies, but do it with the goal of, um, uh, of bringing value to the learner, right? Not, you know, not like, let's, let's get them addicted to this thing so we can sell ads quite the opposite, use those engaged mechanics to bring value to the person, right? As a nonprofit, then there was, there was a lot of potential in that. And so you have Coursera and a whole bunch of great, uh, you know, free, often free online tools. And those are, those are fantastic. And I encourage a lot of them, but they're not the same as what we're doing because our average um, learning snippet is a micro course that we call a bite. They're all open and free to the world. Anyone can use them on roomy.org. But the idea behind them is that they have to be engaging, right? We're not just focused on like, this has to be top quality learning because you realize that that only works in an in-person environment when you have a captive audience, right? You, you know, you lock them in a room and give them a 60 minute lecture because it's your, you know, it's your school physics class. But once you go online and digital, um, people have a choice and they're getting attacked by notifications from TikTok and this and that. And so you really need the content to be shorter and engaging to make people use it more. And so that's the biggest difference, I think, for us is that, you know, micro learning, we're very, very bullish about. It's, it's a newer approach. Uh, research shows that it has uh, anywhere from 22% to 40% gain in learner retention. So all else being equal, it seems to be more effective. But I'd say the biggest, the biggest um, value it brings is that by doing it in small snippets, it means you can use it a lot more. And so, and what we're finding now is that because you also get a dopamine rush from learning a new concept or skill, um, you know, we're finding actually that it's, it's starting to replace social media time. So we did a survey of youth in Detroit um, because we use around the world, but in, um, in that one, 88% uh, of the, um, of the learners said that it was competing with social media time. So it's a really long way of answering your question to say, Actually, we found that none of the people using it were saying that it was competing with, you know, Khan Academy or any of these other great resources online because they don't really let you, 
you know, do a five or six minute thing on your phone really quickly when you're on the go, which meets sort of how the modern learner sort of uses technology. And instead, um, it was competing directly with um, with social media, right? And so, you know, you get a dopamine rush from a six minute Instagram session. You also get a dopamine rush from learning a discrete skill or concept in six minutes, which is what one of our micro course or bites are. And, you know, our, our goal actually is that not only to improve access to learning, but as an added bonus, if we can do that by replacing time that wasn't being spent on learning was instead being spent on social media you can see how as it scales uh it creates a tremendous amount of, of of you know of value to society because you know you start to get a dopamine rush over months in a way that improves your mental health and builds your skills rather than you know doing it in a way that um frankly is bad for your mental health and doesn't teach you anything but makes you know facebook lots of money so Tariq, you're in over 100 countries are you in several languages we are yeah and so we um have worked in a lot of languages around the world um you know a good a good um data point that's kind of interesting is that we started in 2013 globally we even began doing stuff in arabic in 2015 2016 around, uh, which was for you know uh, syrian refugees uh, those pro projects and programs actually started doing in canada afterwards because a lot of what we were then doing was equally applicable to you know, refugees coming and uh, to live in, in, in Canada. Um, and uh, what, we, um, uh, what we've done sort of is as we've really built out uh, sort of a, a newer version of, of the solution that we launched during the, um, uh, right at the beginning of the pandemic, um, which is really the, the stuff around that's really honed our micro-learning uh, approach and abilities, We've done it in uh, English. Um, we are doing it in, uh, interestingly, in Dari and in Pashto. Those are the two main, main languages spoken in Afghanistan. Those are for girls' education programs that we started in 2017. The idea there was that, you know, um, 20 years ago, the Taliban had access to, uh, the Taliban had, had shut down girls' education programs, and there was not a lot of alternatives because 20 years ago, there weren't any mobile phones. But today, over 80% of Afghans have access to a mobile phone, and so working you know, with the operator, we've basically been now starting to distribute free learning straight to people's devices across the country, which I have to say after the events of this past summer when the government fell, um, you know, we had not predicted that, but it was seen a, a tr we're basically trying to grow it as fast as we can now because the need has suddenly spiked much faster than we, we uh, had imagined, um, but we have a solution that we can grow in real time. Um, and so it's, you know, it's um, it's in a number of languages now. To answer your question, I think um, we're going to add a number soon, and it's all sort of dependent on like, you know, we're a nonprofit, so if we get the, you know, institutional funder who comes along and says, listen, we want to see you make a big push into French and distribute in these countries or in these areas or in you know Quebec or whatever, would happily do it um, because the platform, you know, having given that we're doing it in Pashto for girls in Afghanistan with low bandwidth, basic mobile phones. And then it's being used by kids in North America, which is where a lot of the growth has been. You know, you kind of see how it really spans the gamut, right? Is that it's a solution that can be much like, you know, like uh, any other good learning solution online, like a, or a resource, it can be, um, you know, it can be adapted to different languages very easily. Okay. So do you have any uh, bites in business, like starting a business or? We have a lot, actually. What's really interesting about our model um, is that um, we're focused on job, life, and career skills, right? Those are the main areas of, of subject areas that we've found 
are the ones where we can have the most impact. And it's interesting, we kind of got there because we didn't, one of the issues with the education space is it's very, very paternalistic. It's very, very top down. So people say, here's what people need. And then they just try to shove it down. And again, it, you know, there, that kind of works if you have a public education system where everyone's forced to go to school and get a diploma and they have to hit certain requirements. But the problem is that as you go into technology, right, there's a tremendous opportunity because you can deliver at next to no cost to billions of devices. It scales very effectively and so on. But then, you know, uh, challenge is that you know as you go multi then you know you um you know you you, you can't you, you you have to realize that people like learn differently right on a device and that's where we started to realize that um you know we really needed to build engagement into our model we need to think about you know what do people want right Let, not so much about what we think they need it's, it's that and but overlapping what they want because they have a choice and on their mobile device if they think something's boring it's not like a classroom where they're stuck sitting through the whole lecture right they just whoop, press a button and you're your app or whatever is gone and they're watching a, you know, cat video on YouTube, whatever. And so our biggest thing was we said, we have to give learners what they want, because if we do that, they will use it more and then you have more impact. And, uh, and so, you know, where we kind of landed was as we started to grow the community and the learners and, you know, we've added a hundred thousand learners in the last couple of months, it started to accelerate really, you know, it, it started to really explode during COVID and now is accelerating. We found that, um, you know, we could understand what content to provide them by listening to them and asking them. And of, of course, you know, it had to be in the, within the we had guardrails around it. Of course, you know, what, what is learning content, what isn't. But within those guardrails, you know, the goal was that we should empower the community to, you know, to be based on pull rather than push. So we, we listen to what they want, they pull it, and, we, and we, then we have it created. Uh, and that um, has led to uh, that the focus now on really very much on practical skills because that's where all the demand was, right? Youth were saying, you know, listen, we want to understand soft skills, number one, because those are things that are not taught in a basic curriculum, right? And, and it's very hard for someone who, you know, who has grown up in a tougher area. Let's say Toronto is an example of a city, you know, if you grew up in, uh, Forest Hill versus you grew up in Regent Park versus if you grew up in, you know, in uh, somewhere in Mississauga, Brampton, which is where I grew up, um, you can kind of see how, um, you know, even if the curriculum is the same at the school level, um, some of those kids are not going to get the soft skills, right? They're not going to really know, you know, um, how do I get a job? How do I interview? You know, what are basic business skills that I can learn and apply how do I be an entrepreneur? Because those aren't taught in the curriculum. And so they're, you know, if you're in one of those communities, you're more likely to get one of the richer communities, you're more likely to get access to it. Whereas if you're in a, uh, or more remote or, or uh, a less affluent community with a lot of recent immigrants, you know, it's, it's just harder because you don't, you're surrounded by people who know it. And so it's funny when we started listening to the community that these are the areas that they really wanted. Right. And we said, okay, well, this is what they want. Um, there's a huge need for it. And you know, this is, this is where, the most impact can be had. So I mean, long story short, yes, you can l learn lots of uh, business skills with six minute courses and there's any, you know, really content across various areas from business acumen to innovation to, you know, up and down and across the board. And it's all available, you know, for free on roomy.org. So let's kind of do a little visioning here. Three years from now, is this a build to sell or are you going to continue to grow it? 
So we'll never sell because it's a nonprofit. Um, but I do think that we can scale this exponentially to be the next sort of what I call the Wikipedia of micro learning. And the reason I use the Wikipedia example is not just because Wikipedia is a nonprofit and you know the scale to become a giant public resource for the world. Those are good reasons. But there's um, there's something different that makes us very much like Wikipedia. And it's that if someone goes to Rumi.org, you know, you can ideally on your phone and you can just bookmark it and then sort of use it as an app and just load it, you know, any, any time, or, um, you know, you go on a desktop or from anywhere. Uh, sometimes people don't even realize that all of the content created on roomy.org is, um, created by volunteers, right. Working in a distributed fashion, right. Really, really skilled experts, instructional designers. In some cases we've even worked with companies where their employees, um, it's a great way to instill purpose and, uh, improve the culture is that you get them involved in skills-based digital volunteering opportunities. And, you know, you could think of that as being you know, every employee or, you know, the department, they have a certain skill set, right? They know finance, they know basic accounting, they know this or that. And our model helps them distill, uh, you know, all of those insights through a special platform are built into these micro courses and these bytes. And so to answer your question, three years time, you know, what we've found is that when we launched this micro learning piece specifically um, uh, in the sort of middle of 2020, soon after the pandemic hit, we had 50 micro courses that we'd spent some time building. Uh, we now have 12 or 1300 um, and the rate of growth is accelerating simply because it's driven by a volunteer community, right? And that volunteer community has grown into the thousands. And so it's a bit like Wikipedia in, in that sense that, you know, it's the, we're not just a nonprofit willy nilly because we didn't really know how to, you know, make a profit out of it. It's more because it's intrinsic to our model that in order to leverage the crowd online, which is tremendous, if you can do it, obviously Wikipedia created the biggest encyclopedia in history by doing that. Um, you know, you can produce a far better product that's more expansive with more subject areas and so on by leveraging the fact that there's a lot of good people around the world who want to contribute their time and their skills to something that is a public resource, right? That is housed in a nonprofit and that like Wikipedia will sort of provide a resource for all of humanity. So in three years, I can see at the rate we're going, um, you know, honestly it would be, I would imagine we would be in the, you know, I would hope that we'd hit hundred million learners by then. And, you know, at the minimum tens of thousands of micro courses because we're going to, you know, learners are growing very quickly, but the community of, of people creating the content's growing really quickly. And that's, that's really the most exciting part about our model, right? It's, it's the, is the Wikipedia potential. Okay. Talk about partnerships, importance of, and where your revenue comes to support what you're doing, because you have a fairly significant team. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Well, so we, um, you know, we partner with different types of organizations. Often it will be, uh, you know, organizations that do education and or learning work in some way, shape or form, and they see value out of micro learning. And so they will either create content on the platform. So to give you a sense, like the Center for Suicide Prevention has created a bite um, because there's a lot of content on mental health. And it's a total win-win because, you know, for us, it's great to get content from skilled experts in these specific areas. And for them, we're a very effective distribution mechanism, right, to, to reach youth in a package, in a format, and on a platform that, that they like and are already growing in use. Um, and so you have partners like that that create content. That's great. You sometimes have partners that try to implement the final product in the field. So UNICEF 
uses it in the Middle East, junior achievement has used it in Africa and so on. In these cases, all really around teaching job skills and so on. And so there's those type of partners and then there's funding partners. And you know, that's because it's philanthropic, we actually don't have a lot of funding from the public. Um, uh, I mean, obviously people are always welcome to help donate and help us grow the work in Afghanistan for girls education and other things. But, um, but the truth is it's mainly backed by institutions so like Scotiabank is a big um, contributor and backer, and it's it's all purely philanthropic, right? They they want to support community initiatives. They're um, sharp enough to realize that you know digital innovation um, has been underutilized in the charity space, and you know holds the potential to create a lot more social impact a lot cheaper than ever before. Okay, talk about your team. Honestly, the team is probably the most attractive and amazing thing we have. We have a very, very effective team. Um, I, you know, people sometimes say we have one of the best tech teams in Toronto. We definitely have the best tech team in a nonprofit, right? Because tech nonprofits don't have tech teams often. I think that's just a little bit of the culture of the organization, right? I, I was a former investment banker and left to do something really different. Um, it obviously has entailed a massive pay cut, but but an, an improvement in uh, – my job satisfaction because I'm passionate about the work we do. And I think we've attracted a team that are just, you know, they're really, really passionate about what they do. They could be working a lot of other places if they really wanted to, but you know, they like being part of a great team environment or working on solving a big problem for the world in a way that's truly innovative and, you know, that could, and, you know, could be game changing. And so um, a very, very strong team, both in the tech side and the non-tech side uh, and one that we're, you know, we're growing. So, Tariq, how do people reach your organization again? What's the website? So the easiest way is to just go to roomie.org. It's R-U-M-I-E dot org. And when you land, you'll see the, you know, the Roomie Learn platform and a set of you know, micro-learning courses, or, you know, again, as we call them, bytes. And then, uh, you know, we also always share a lot of stuff on social. You know, we, we, we encourage people to reach out. Um, if they want to have a direct conversation uh, or just do what most people do, which is just, you know, um, take advantage of, of the content being created by skilled, you know, people around the world. Um, and again, it's, it's volunteer driven, but, we, you know, we vet people before they enter the community and then we vet the content before it goes up. So we know that it's high quality. Um, and we also know that this model allows us to do, you know, to, to leverage um, the crowd online to, to do a lot of the heavy lifting and contribute their skills so that we get a lot more done with a lot less money. Well, Tariq, you've uh, created something very unique, and it's just the beginning, I think, from what uh, you've said today. So thank you that's very the, much for your... That's uh, what I hope. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me.